What comes to mind when you hear the term ethical storytelling? Well, I think I've been that that idea has been in the conversation, at least in my world, for a while. And I think I think you know I think one of the things that was really clear to me a number of years ago is that there has to be a little bit of a generosity built into the conversation because we're all on a learning curve. Um, there are things that I did in both in my work as a photographer and as a filmmaker five years ago, 10 years ago, one year ago that I wouldn't do today. And I think it can be really easy to look at other, other people that are, um, that are telling stories of all kinds, um, and, and easily cast judgment or project our own, um, sort of values onto them. And I think, you know, I think as with a lot of things in this day and age where, where we are very polarized, I, I, I just think there has to be a bit of built in generosity so that we can engage and, and talk about these issues. But, but for me, like it, it always comes back to the, the same thing when it comes to storytelling, especially when it comes to telling a true story is to, as much as I can, um, use my ability as a storyteller to actually create a microphone for other people to tell their own story. So, um, you know, with documentary films, is that your phone by chance? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's let me turn. <laughs> yeah, it will just silence anything or turn off well, messages. It's, it's, it's not my phone. It's my iMessage on my computer. So oh, yeah. If you don't mind, silent. I don't know. If there's a way to silence that, but maybe just turn it off for now. Let me see if I can. And I quit it. <clears throat> yeah, my phone's my phone's not near me, and it's on silent. Um. Yeah, I think if you sign out of it, it won't pop open then okay let's see if that works um <clears throat> anyway as i was saying um or how far back should i go um i think just the last comment about giving voice yeah someone. so you know when i was um one of the first lessons i got i i i, I guess that i had in this was uh, seven or eight years ago i was in uganda working on shake the dust uh, my first documentary and I met this guy, Oscar, who at the time was, I think, 17 years old. And, um, he, you know, he was not going to be a part of the documentary film, but I asked him if he would help me um, with the camera. And I think, you know, just including him in the process of telling other, his friends' stories was really meaningful. It helped me learn a lot. It helped me get access that I wouldn't have had before, and it helped me... Um, I think it helped the people that we were documenting be more authentic, but more importantly, Oscar then learned a skill. He learned how to, um, carry a camera, carry a microphone and, um, and now he's making documentary films. So I think, you know, the, a big theme of my, my adult life has been, um, not to try and tell other people's stories, but to help them tell their own story. And so that to me is what ethical storytelling is. It's not taking someone's story away and repurposing it, um, but letting it, um, letting them own it and letting them ultimately be the ones that tell it. I love that. Yeah, I think we are full on board with that perspective. And you and I met through the nonprofit world. So um, for everyone listening, can you tell me a little bit more about how did you enter into filmmaking in the nonprofit sector? 
Well, I graduated um, 10 years ago with a degree in photography and had kind of already developed the travel itch both as a part of and separately from that. And so right out of college, I worked on a documentary film team in Thailand um, that Rachel knows well. (laughs) And that was my first foray into storytelling and into um and into not only the nonprofit world but the the world of i i guess of documenting suffering in a way um and i learned a lot of lessons on that on that trip um as i said i started out as a photographer but as the years went on that was one trip and then because i went on that trip i was invited by another organization to go on a you know a trip to um, Africa. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was kind of the go-to guy to, um, to take along on, you know, for nonprofits to take along to document the work they were doing. And, um, as the years went on very quickly, I transitioned from photography into filmmaking, especially with the change in technology that happened and continued to do, um, short form video pieces for, nonprofit organizations and for companies that had some kind of a social enterprise component of what they were doing. Um, but I also started using the jobs that I was, um, taking to fund, uh, my first documentary, shake the dust. And, um, and sometimes I'd piggyback on trips and go film here and there, um, for that as well. Yeah, you mentioned that with technology changing um, and probably access to cameras, a lot of that has really developed over this past 10 years. And even the idea of making films for nonprofits is a fairly new landscape, a new idea. So, you know, how have you... Have you seen any set standards as, you know, we have in journalism, you have journalism practices and do's and don'ts. Um, When you entered that space, was there really any standard for nonprofit storytelling? Were we held to the same uh, standards as journalism or other forms of filmmaking? Unfortunately, no, I don't think so. I I haven't seen that too. And I think it's sad. And, and I think, you know, at the, you know, at the core of this is another issue, which is not the nonprofit world. And that's, you know, there are nonprofits that are doing really good work. There are nonprofits that are not, and there is everything in between. And I think that's a whole other, you know, that's not disconnected from this idea of storytelling is you're telling, you might be telling the story really, really well and really ethically, but the organization might be uh, misguided in its in its efforts, and so that's that's something that has been a challenge for me too. Is trying to find the right partnerships with the right companies and organizations, and 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 they're not all perfect. Um, and I and I, you know, I don't think any of them are perfect. Um, but that has been a, a challenge as well because I don't think that there's a set st- there's not a lot of set standards out there for nonprofits either. There's a whole kind all kinds of conversations um, about what is right and what is helpful and what is not. Um, and, but that filters into the storytelling components as well. And I think there are friends of mine, even that I see being very vocal about this idea of ethical storytelling and then still doing things on their Instagram accounts or, um, or on their blogs or social media that to me are a little questionable. And, and, 
I probably do that too. I think when we go into a place, especially a place that has experienced hardship and suffering or is underserved in some way, um, it can be very easy to accidentally exploit the people that we're very much trying to help. And it goes the same for nonprofit work, for for you know trying to contribute or, or help the problem. Oftentimes we bring new problems um, into this situation and, or exacerbate problems that are there. And I think the only way that we can solve that um, is to have these kinds of conversations. And, you know, as far as a list of, of principles, um, you know, ideally a good journalist has a very set standard of do's and don'ts. And I think, you know, those create guidelines. A journalist still has to use their moral compass in almost every story that they tell, but I think it at least creates a system of guidelines and understandings of what is for sure okay and where the lines need to be drawn. And it, it, it's amazing to me that we don't have that in um, in telling stories for brands and for for nonprofits and, and in the campaigns that we do and the and the photos we take. And and it's no wonder that there's I see more and more of a backlash. You know, I was a couple of years ago I was in Ethiopia shooting for Oliberté, which is a, you know, a boot company out of Canada that, um, has, that they just make quality boots out of Ethiopia, um, and pay fair wages. They're the first fair trade shoe company in existence. Um, and I was out just getting B-roll of Otis. Um, and I was, I wasn't, you know, I was just out filming in the streets, but I was in an area of Otis that's not the greatest. And I, you know, I, I don't even know that I recognize that or knew, you know, that I was filming in, um, in a poor neighborhood, but a young man, probably 17 years old came up to me and said, please stop filming this. And I said, why? And he said, we don't need more people to film this neighborhood. There's lots of other things in Otis for you to film. And I just thought that was, you know, and I, I, I stopped. And I just thought that was interesting. You know, I don't think that would have happened five years ago, even where you would go into, you know, especially in East Africa, if you pulled a camera out, everyone would gather around or, um, you know, or they would maybe be uncomfortable, but they wouldn't certainly try and stop you. But I think more and more I'm seeing people say, stop filming me. You haven't, I haven't given you permission to film me. Yeah. That's... Kind of, that got a little tangential, but. No, it's a that's fantastic. Thanks, Adam. Um, there was one point you said that I would love to kind of go back to and ask you to expand on a little bit more, which is talking about, um, you know, the nonprofit world doesn't necessarily have those standards right now, and it sounds like you really had to create your own set of standards for what you're looking for in nonprofits. And so, can you share a bit about what that discernment process is like for you as you're deciding whether or not to partner or come on board with a nonprofit to help them produce their story? Yeah, that's a really good and tough question. And it's, you know, I think it's always evolving for me. I, you know, whenever a nonprofit or a company wants me to work with them, um, I have a, a pretty, a pretty, um, frank conversation with them. Um, and I, and I, I'll try and think of a few of the things that I would ask, but you know, it really can depend on it. it it's pretty specific to whoever they are as a company or an organization. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, um, how are you, 
you know, working with with the locals to empower them. What is the long term goal? You know, what are you are you eventually trying to pass this along so that the local um, people can take ownership of it? And you know, is there is are you are you treating this like a company where you don't ever want to have to close your doors? You know, you know, ideally, you go in to try and solve a problem and help help the people solve a problem. Come alongside people that are. Um, poorly resourced to try and solve their own problems, and so usually my my lines of questioning will be will be along that. You know, uh, for a larger organization like um, Project Red, Bono's organization, um, which receives a lot of criticism internationally for for a variety of reasons, but you know, they um, essentially all of the money that they raise goes directly back to the Global Fund, and the Global Fund, which is an international fund. Um, that is governed out of Switzerland, but is contributed to by nearly every country in the world. Um, has uh, you know a governing body that that has a kind of a stringent set of principles on anti on you know what governments it will work with, what governments are too corrupt to be able to actually monitor where the resources go. Um, and I've been on the ground and seen the you know dollars go directly back alongside government efforts that are already happening against HIV in East Africa. So that's an example where I've seen the waterfall from someone buying, you know, someone relatively disconnected from the HIV issue in Africa, buying, you know, an iPhone or, you know, buying a Starbucks or something that is a product red um, product and that money going directly back to work alongside locals. So even though, there is a part of me that, you know, is sad by, you know, is saddened by um, campaigns like this where, you know, where it's just driven by consumerism. A consumer goes and buys a product and, you know, someone else is maybe uh, helped a little bit by it, and then the consumer gets to feel good. Um, that's a situation where I was like, okay, I can work with this organization because they um, even though the consumer may be disconnected a little bit or maybe they feel good and that's okay. I know the money is going directly, um, as best as it possibly can, it's going directly to help end HIV in Africa down to a clinic level. I mean, um, and so it, it, like, like I said, it varies for every organization and, and it's imperfect. And I'm sure my filter is imperfect. And there are other people that, for example, wouldn't work with product red. Um, but I, I use that as an example almost because it is a more contentious, um, brand, um, to kind of help understand what my filter was for that. On the reverse, are there certain filters you suggest nonprofits should have with photographers or storytellers? That nonprofits should have with their storytellers. Yes. Uh, in selecting, you know, who to take on assignment with them. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times when you're traveling, you know, lately I'm more often the filmmaker or the, or the, the guy with the video camera and not the stills photographer. And so it's interesting because sometimes you get partnered with other people and you get to see how they work. And I've been fortunate that most of the time, um, I've, I've worked, you know, really well with other people. There's a guy named John's out of South Africa that I've worked with and we have the same mentality, uh, Esther Havens. I've worked with her where I was shooting a video and she was shooting stills. Um, 
I think, but then I've also observed the opposite. And it's a lot of the time it's, um, it's inexperience that I think, I, I, you know, I think these things, the more time that you spend in traveling the world and going into someone else's home and into someone else's community, um, I think the more sensitive and self-aware you become. Um, but I think as far as actual standards, man, ask someone before you want to film them. I mean, yeah, I, I just feel like so often, especially videographers, um, they just wander in and just start filming people. And that's not okay in any culture, you know, that would not be okay here. And I think there has to be a sense of, of dig of, you know, restoring these people's dignity and so much of, especially in a place that's war torn or that has, is tremendously under-resourced. Their dignity is already in jeopardy in so many regards. And, um, but they still have dignity and they still have their humanity. And I think, um, we take something from them when we just wander in and begin documenting their lives without their permission or without getting to know them. I mean, you know, when I'm maybe, maybe a better example is when I'm working on a documentary film, I never just pull my camera out when I'm, when I have a subject, I spend a decent amount of time with them first, sometimes days, sometimes Sometimes I, I, I do a trip where I just hang out with them and I don't even start filming yet. I mean, I I feel like it's important to develop a relationship. And sometimes you can't go that far um, if you're just you're in the field for a few days to try and document the work of a nonprofit. Then maybe you only have an hour with someone. But you go in, You you usually if you're going into someone's home, they're going to offer you refreshments or, or something. You, you sit down. You ask them questions. You ask them about their kids. You you get to know them, and then you say, "Is it okay if we um, if we tell your story and you explain who you are?" And and you have to create a setting in which they don't feel coerced or pressured to do it either. I mean, I just think, um, yeah, any any little old lady that I'm going to interview, I'm going to treat like my grandma. <laughs> you know, I'm going to treat with. Sorry, my iMessage is still blowing up, and I don't know how to get it to stop. Adam, if you go to um, your preferences in iMessage. Okay. Click on Messages, and then go to Preferences. And then it, click on Accounts. Okay. And then click on your account, and then click on log out. Okay. Sign out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There we are. Problem Sorry. solved. Yeah, I think uh, that was a, a lesson I learned too in spending time with people before cameras. Where I almost make that standard myself when nonprofits hire me is I have to have a day of pre-production, which literally only includes me spending time with the story subjects, like a full day before, um, and just working it in because you can have limited time, but you can also make it part of the production schedule. You know, it has to be just as important as filming. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, that, that makes, reminds me, you know, a lot of times a nonprofit has control over the schedule. And I think, 
um, it's really important for the the filmmaker or the photographer to consult with the nonprofit on the schedule beforehand because I think a lot of times the nonprofit organizations I work with are really motivated to get as much possible filming in. I see this again and again. It's like try and film as much as possible. Um, like get as many, you know, if it's a, if we're trying to visit, do home visits, try and get as many home visits in as possible. Um, if it's clinics, get as many clinics in as possible. And I'm always fighting against that because it's like, first of all, not building in any time for human connection here. And that has to happen. It has to happen not just on an ethical level. It has to happen for your photos to be good. Um, but also a lot of, yeah, a lot of times getting the story right means spending time with one person. You're not going to be able to do a necessarily do a super effective two minute, one minute, um, piece about the work you're doing. Let's say fighting malaria. If you just spent, you know, 10 minutes, in a clinic and then went to the next place and then went and filmed a whole bunch of B-roll and then visited two people's homes and then left. Like sometimes it is sitting with a story and letting that story play itself out, letting, um, you know, people open up and feel comfortable. That's not just ethical storytelling. That's good journalism. That's good storytelling in general. It's, you know, uh, patience. And so I'm always pushing back against nonprofits to say, look, like, you got to cut some of these out or we got to go for an extra two days um, so that we actually have time to properly do this. And otherwise it's a waste of time and it's a waste of money. It's a waste of your donor's money that you're, you're spending on plane tickets and paying me, you know? Well, I'd love to talk about your film. I am Sun Moo and you just released that on Netflix um, last year. Is that correct? Uh, it came out uh, in February. February 1st. Oh, great. So can you give us a brief background on that film? And I'm also particularly interested in your collaboration with Link in the process of that. Yeah. So I, you know, we worked on this film. It's a, so it's a, it's a feature documentary about a North Korean dissident artist who actually worked, um, for the North Korean regime, you know, everybody in North Korea serves in the military and his job in the military was to be a propaganda artist. And so when he escaped to the South, he went to one of the best fine art schools in Seoul in South Korea and um, has gone on to um, become a, a pretty well-established uh, pop artist in South Korea and in, in Asia. Um, and he's popular in Europe as well. Um, he he doesn't show his face and operates under the name Sun Moo, which is not his real name, just to protect his family back in North Korea. But um, as a as a um, defector from North Korea, he was introduced to Liberty in North Korea, which is an organization that works with uh, refugees. They not only do they have an underground railroad that actually helps refugee uh, North Koreans escape to safety. Um, and and make it into South Korea or the United States, um, where they have clearer paths to citizenship. But also they um, yeah they help with repatriation. They help with counseling, um, with you know language issues, and um, they help refugees transition. And it can be a very very challenging transition when you're coming from North Korea. So I, I they're doing amazing work, and I was connected with them years ago in 2009. I started shooting with them and helping them document their work. I worked on a short film with them about uh, a North Korean young guy named Danny 
um, back in 2012. And when I was filming that in Seoul, um, Justin Wheeler, who's the who's the then vice president of Liberty in North Korea, said, "Hey, uh, there's this there's this awesome artist named Sun Moo. Do you want to go meet him?" Um, so we went to his studio, and I walked into his studio, and I was blown away by his work. Just uh, really interesting stuff. Some of it's hilarious, a lot of it's satirical, but a lot of it's really heartbreaking. Um, some of it's really hopeful. He, he has two daughters, and he often incorporates them um, into his paintings, um, depicting young North Korean school children walking with young South Korean school children, which is a really dynamic image in, on the peninsula. So I, I just I fell in love with his his heart. We went out drinking that night in Seoul, which if anyone knows, the culture in South Korea is, you know, you kind of have to keep up with whoever is hosting you. And so he, I had a wild night and um, he had been very resistant to having anyone tell his story. But he mostly, I think, through his trust in Liberty in North Korea and their confidence. Um, again, not filming him, but just hanging out, he eventually agreed to let me do a documentary about him. And uh, it was about a year and a half later that he was given the opportunity to have a huge solo exhibition in China. And that felt, I knew, I knew we didn't have the resources to, to document, to do like an eight year documentary about him, you know, to spend the better part of a decade, just documenting him and figuring out what the story was later. I knew we needed kind of a, a peg to hang the story on. And so that show in Beijing felt like the perfect opportunity to, um, to have a, you know, kind of a center point. And, um, so I began flying out to, to South Korea and to Beijing to document his preparations for that show, uh, which ended up being a pretty climactic event. Yeah, and a huge part of that was just uh, his identity being having to protect his identity, and even his family. I know joined him there. And I one thing I found really interesting is so much of the film, uh, which is beautifully shot without revealing his face. It, I found it really interesting that you did show his wife and children's faces. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about how you came to that decision with a film so centered on not revealing his identity. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And it's the, it's the number one question that I got during the film festival circuit. Um, and it's a valid one. Um, but it has a good answer. First of all, um, there's, there's a couple layers to it. First of all, uh, Sun Moo's main concern is for his family back in North Korea, and his family in South Korea are South Koreans. They never have lived in North Korea, and they have no connection to North Korea beyond the war 50 years ago. Um, so that's point number one. Now, that being said, everyone would follow up with, well, it seems like it would be pretty easy if you could figure out his family's identity to, to track him down and figure out who he is and what he looks like, and that's absolutely true. I think the... You know, the the reality is Sun Mu every single day decides what freedoms to give up and what freedoms to have. And, it, and almost every defector chooses to not show their face if they have any family back home, even if it's not practical. 
Um, we have no idea if the North Koreans know who Sun Mu is or if they've had the ability to connect him back to his actual family. We know as of right now his family in North Korea is still safe. Um, but Sun Mu made the decision about whether or not to show his kids' faces and his wife's face, not only in our film, but in his own paintings. I mean, he paints pictures of his daughters and his wife. And, you know, I followed his lead the entire, every step of the way. You know, I said, Sun Mu, you know, you know, it's up to you whether you want to show your, you know, your face, whether your, your wife and your kids want to show their faces. And I think, I think part of it is, Someone who's always running up against that idea of, of uh, freedom, what freedoms to keep and what freedoms to give up. And he, you know, he came to our premiere, for example, in we had our the premiere of the film, the world premiere of the film was at the demilitarized zone on the border of North Korea on the South Korean side, obviously. And um, and he, he and his wife came with their kids and had this notion that they would just that Sun Mu wouldn't hang out with them and they would be kind of separate and he would um, kind of blend in with the crowd and I thought it was insane um but it was his choice and at the you know after the film was over I I walked up to them and it was that it was held at this military base um and they were able to remain relatively anonymous we didn't bring them up or anything or point them out but you know, his wife and his daughters left pretty quickly because they felt they they kind of realized what they, you know that they were putting themselves in, in at risk or danger of of exposing Sun Mu. And so, it's a that's a really long answer to say that um, I don't think Sun Mu knows what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, and there's nobody there to tell him what's okay and what's not okay. Um, but for more for most North Koreans, it's 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 um, impossible for them to con- to even think about showing their face in public, in print, on screen, um, because of their background and because of their kind of subconscious fear of the regime. And so he he does maintain that tradition. And even now, when he shows up at um, gallery openings or um, travels, he wears a mask when he's up in front of an audience or when he's um, being pointed out, when he can't kind of just be anonymous, he wears a mask, but then oftentimes he'll just take the mask off right afterwards and walk away. And theoretically people could photograph him. So I think he, I think he's always walking a fine line. I think part of it is a lot of people want to compare him to Banksy where Banksy, you know, very strategically guards his identity and it's not, quite that extreme even though you could argue that Sun Mu has way more reason to be that extreme definitely I think that you know you spoke about he was the one deciding when to show his face or his family's face and could you speak into a little more of what role does the person you're filming play in deciding how far to go with their stories especially when you're approaching dangerous topics such as those in North Korea, you know, what role does the person have to play when they don't have someone guiding them, telling them, you know, how far to go and what role do you need to play in helping also protect a person's story? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. And I, and I think, um, it's, it's one of, it's one of the hard things as a filmmaker because 
as a documentary filmmaker, you're meant to be curious. You're supposed to be willing to go to the dangerous places and to put yourself in danger. And, you know, I think a, a lot of the times a documentary filmmaker in particular is going somewhere and putting themselves more at risk than their subject. Their subject is already probably at risk or is living somewhere where they're at risk. And, you know, but this was a situation where I'm an American citizen. There's not a whole lot that in China or in Korea that anyone can do to me. Um, but really, it's Sun Mu that's at risk. And so I just had to be constantly communicating with him. Is this okay? Are you comfortable with this? And and pointing out to him regularly, are you sure you want to do that? You know, Sun Mu, for his opening in China, was going to come to the opening. And he had all these different ideas. He was going to wear a, a costume, um, this or that. And as the as the opening approached, you know, we all had a conversation about it. And we all contributed our point of view of whether it was safe or not. And, and it ended up being, you know, it didn't even end up, once you see the film, you understand why, it didn't even end up being an issue because he was fleeing before he could even think about coming to the opening. But but uh, I think it's communicating. It's it, And as much as I'm always wanting to put, you know, as the filmmaker wanting to, you know, be document something that's exciting or adventurous or you know be fearless um and i have a little bit of that like recklessness in me um i also have to recognize that this is someone else's life at all times i can't ever lose sight of that and i have to advise them as i would advise anyone um when i feel like we're in a dangerous situation obviously when you have a camera on you you stand out and so yeah i think it's about that conversation it helps when you become when you are their friend you know um there are documentary filmmakers i don't think this is the same when you're working with a nonprofit and you're trying to tell someone's story um i think it's quite fine to be um come close with your subject there are some documentary filmmakers that do not want to be close with their subject they want to remain a fly on the wall and not insert themselves i don't follow that I don't think that's logical. I don't think that exists. <laughs> you know, I think if you're actually documenting someone for a long enough time, like you are in the story now, like you can't avoid it. You are a part of it. You now know things and, and there's just no way to not be a part of it. And so in my mind, like with Sun Mu, we were front. I mean, we had spent way more time off camera than we had on camera. We had, uh, you know, had endless meals together and had such a rapport, even without speaking each other's language, um, that it was, it just becomes a lot easier to make those moral choices and to try and, and to protect his safety because he is now my friend and we're in this together, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. Have you ever seen a person in a film put in a dangerous circumstance because of their story being told? Um, yeah, <laughs> trying to think of some good examples. I, what was the, I saw something recently where that happened. Let me think for a second. Take your time. <laughs> or even in any nonprofits you've worked with where they might've realized it after the fact of the film being released or photograph being released? Well, I, you know, I, I have to admit that I've worried about that with, with, with I am Sun Mu, not even as much with Sun Mu, but, um, 
You know, it's interesting. This was a decision that I made, and I, I, I know I'm not the only person who's done this, but it's it's not the preference of a lot of filmmakers. I chose to not have a release, for, to, not to have Sun Moo sign a release. Um, everyone else in the film signed a release, but um, because of the situation, uh, because of the relationship, because of his, the danger that he was in and the trust that he was giving me, to tell his story, I chose, it felt inappropriate to have him sign a release form. Because first of all, at the end of the day, if there's anything that he doesn't want in the film because of his safety, I'm not going to put it in there. It's just uh, my moral (laughs) obligation. And it felt like because I never made him sign a release, that really sealed the relationship and the trust. Um, But there are other people in the film uh, his mentor and the curator, the guy that uh, Liang Kagong, who is a Chinese artist who curated Sun Moo's exhibit in China, who um, they actually did sign releases. Um, and um, when the original version of the film was cut, uh, one of them said, can you please take, actually both of them um, had me take certain things out and asked me to. And of course I did because they were incriminating because um, you know I'm you know with Sun Mu he he's he was certainly in danger but he's always in danger and he's he, he's purposefully putting himself in danger but there were other people that stuck their necks out for him that um, one of them spent nine months in self-imposed exile in South Korea um, the other one was monitored heavily by the Chinese government after the exhibit. Um, the people that surrounded Sun Mu were very much put in danger by the exhibit itself, not by my film. And I didn't want to further worsen that. Um, but that being said, they also both know that by nature of being in this film, um, they could be in further danger. And I, you know, I think about that all the time and they, they still consented. They haven't asked. They haven't asked me to. You know, they've asked me for certain specific things that to take out, and I've done that. Um, but they've chosen to stay in the film, and I mean, I think that's brave of them because I don't think the film would work, or we could tell some new story without telling their story as well. Yeah. What role? Do you have um, your subjects play in reviewing the cuts or the edits that you're putting together before it's actually released? Oh, that's, you know, that, that one's a tough one. I mean, (laughs) uh, there's a fine line. It has to be, there has to be, it is, it has to be a trusting relationship. It has to be a little bit of a give and take. I'm not going to send, you know, when we were working on the film, I would send cuts to Sun Moo. And I should mention, like, Sun Moo, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about, help, you know, people telling their own story, Sun Moo was very involved in the, in the making of the film. He, you know, there's a lot of animation in the film, and he helped with all, um, all of the animation sequences. Um, I gave him a camera at the beginning of the project, so he did a lot of filming himself. Um, so he was, he was, not just the, the subject, but he helped make the film. And um, so I would share cuts with him. And I think because he's an artist, he he really respected me as the filmmaker and respected that role. And he would give 
little bits of input or he would just say, oh, I, I like the other cut better or you know, he's very blunt. So he would just say, you know, I, oh, I don't like that part or this part was boring, you know, but um, he would never tell me what to do or not to do. So that was, you know, I think we had the appropriate back and forth in that regard. Um, but that can get sticky because you don't, as the filmmaker, you still have to be the artist. You have to be the one in control of your of your product uh, or the final product. You have to be able to stand behind it. So I think it has to be, again, it goes back to if you have that relationship, then it can be a conversation, if that makes sense. It's never, it's, there's not a set of rules for that one because it is a conversation. Yeah, and do you think, what, in thinking in the nonprofit sector, is that the conversation, is that the responsibility of the nonprofit to be having with their subjects? Yeah. I mean, I, when it comes to to coming alongside a nonprofit, the nonprofit is the, they are the people that are hopefully maintaining the day-to-day relationships with these people. Um, so yeah, I think that, that is that, you know, they have to be, um, they are the ones that are ultimately responsible for permission, you know, um, as a whole, you know, and I think, you know, for example, if it's a, if it's photos of people that have benefited from wells, you know, you know, that from wells that have been dug in an area where there wasn't clean water and it's photos of those people. You know, I think there has to be a generosity if they're giving, you know, there has to be an exchange. I don't think you, I don't think you can rightfully take that person's image and use it and not, and not have there be an exchange. So I think there should always be some form of payment, some form of agreement, um, that, um, that happens, um, some, some kind of, and, and therefore consent and therefore, you know, usage rights. So, um, and you know, like anybody, you can't necessarily like once, a, once the brochure is printed and you've gone through all of the ethical steps to use that person's image, then yeah, like they can't go in and say, you know, and sue you or to, or tell you not to use them. But if you've gone through all the appropriate steps, and I think that is the nonprofit's job, I think it's, it ends up being the job of, uh, of us documentarians to help educate some of these nonprofits um, you know, I've seen nonprofits, this is far more seldom now, but I've seen nonprofits literally be like, yeah, just go in just go photograph them. We don't need to get any releases. We don't need to get permission. We don't need to know their names. Um, they're benefiting from the work we're doing. So they, you know, I don't care and they don't care. Go photograph them. And then it ends up on a website and a brochure and, and there have been lawsuits that have happened because of that. Um, that is the nonprofit's responsibility, but but as documentarians, I think sometimes we end up having to educate them. In the context of ethical storytelling, what would you go back and say to yourself when you were just starting out, when you had just graduated? Oh, man. That's the thing is I feel when I, at the very beginning when I said there has to be some generosity. Like I, Some of these lessons don't settle in until you have experience. So. I picture myself going and talking to myself and I don't think I would have listened to myself. Um, but you know, I think I would say, I think the, you know, the first thing that I would tell my, I would, that I would tell myself as a 22 year old is, um, is it's all about relationships first. Um, it's not about getting the cool image. 
Because when I first was a hotshot photographer right out of college, first time I went to Africa, all I wanted was like cool photos from my trip to Africa. And that's, I mean, that's just selfish. Um, so I would have told myself, you know, it's about people. It's about building relationships. And, you know, I wish I would have known when I first went to Africa that a few years later I really would form these, uh, I would come back to Africa and I would form these lifelong friendships that I have to this day. Because that's so much more meaningful. And frankly, the photos are way better <laughs> when you actually know the people and when you spend time in their home and and you wait for the decisive moment of connection, um, that's when you get the really good photos. I love that. Thank you, Adam. Everything you said has been so informative, and I think we're going to make you part of our team now. 